Welcome to the FFI Practitioner Podcast. Today, we're pleased to feature Andrew Gersick, a visiting researcher and lecturer in ecology and evolutionary biology at Princeton University, and a researcher in computer science at San Diego State University. At the 2022 FFI Global Conference, he and his father, Kellen Gersick of Landsberg Gersick Advisors, co-presented a session entitled, The Demographics of Evolutionary Behavior, Exploring the Essential Humanness of family enterprise leadership and continuity. Andrew, welcome. Let's talk a bit about your research role and what you and your father talked about at the conference. Well, it, you know, so my father, Kellen Gersick, is a longtime family business consultant and researcher and scholar. And um, so I grew up hearing about family dynamics and family firms. And uh, the the idea for the session arose pretty organically. I study the evolution of behavior, um, mostly animal behavior, but an evolutionary frame is useful for thinking about why all living things do what they do. And um, sometimes we would talk about particular dilemmas he was facing with particular families. And from within his field, these were sort of um, just real head scratchers. Why? <clears throat> why is this happening over and over again? Why is this problem intractable? He was he sort of talked about these sort of groundhog day experiences in his practice where you move through a process working on a particular issue and then you think you've moved forward and then you kind of wake up whenever the next interaction is you find that you have more or less reset and you're back at the beginning. And some of those dilemmas that to him seem sort of bizarre, to me seem like very familiar, but they're sort of manifestations of really basic principles of how we think about why animals, organisms behave the way they do in nature. We're talking about a variety of animals that are studied and there's a lot of close association with what we do as humans, I take it. As a scientist in in sort of an evolutionary theorist, I, I am very wary in some ways of sort of comparisons that seem to suggest that um, any particular phenomenon that we find in human behavior like is natural, sort of in a binary way. Something is or isn't natural. Because very often people will sort of pick and choose from nature and and find an example of something that they have up for other reasons uh, think is the way things ought to be and will say, see, this is how it's supposed to be because it happens in, in nature. So we used, used to use the example of, uh, a professor of mine used to use the example of, um, what was that movie? What was that movie that was at, uh, everywhere for, for a decade about the, the penguins walking the, with the... It was the one uh, that Morgan Freeman yeah, people used narrated. To point, yeah, people yeah. used to point to that the Emperor Penguin movie with Morgan Freeman that was their interact. That was their encounter with that species and what it does. And there was some discussion in that movie about penguins being monogamous. And so there were then people in the culture who would say, "See, monogamy is natural <laughs> because of this. What we see in this movie about this one species. And of course, there are other species that have mating systems. Right. There are all kinds of mating systems in nature. I think the way evolution is useful is that when you see across a wide range of species that social animals keep running into the same problem over and over and over again because there are just some general principles of what it's like to have to live in a group and cooperate in some ways but compete in other ways um, with your group mates. 
those kinds of patterns, I think, are informative. So, like, we talked in the session about the problem of sort of dominant leaders in past their prime that have certain characteristics brought them to the place of dominance. Often it's sort of a certain tendency towards a certain kind of aggression, the desire to accumulate power, a sort of a drive to be highly influential. But those same traits don't turn off when they are past their prime and the next generation of potential dominance is on the upswing. And that becomes a problem because they're, they're older, they're shaky, they're not necessarily providing benefits to all sorts of members of the group, but they are still very driven to try to use their prowess to hold on to their spot. Can't help but think of the Lion King uh, as I speak to you. The Lion King passing it on to his son well, and, uh, and the rivalry with the other lion. Sure. Well, in that case, you have, sure, you have, you have this sibling competition. But I guess the, the character in The Lion King <laughs> doesn't quite work out for him, but, he, but he, is, he is trying to actually, he has a plan to pass on. Right. Right? right. Whereas what you see very often in all sorts of animal societies, but also in human enterprises, is that the, the male who fought his way to the top, it's often the male, doesn't want to stop fighting to hold on to that top spot even after it would be better for everyone if he was willing to move into a more emeritus role. And so, you know, whereas that's very frustrating for consultants like my father, especially when that same person may be someone that you can engage with on a very rational level and will say, absolutely, I'm invested in the long-term health of this firm beyond my tenure as the leader, I can see it's, I want the succession to happen smoothly. I want to develop the talents of the next generation. So rationally, they're committed to this sort of smooth transition, but then behaviorally, they are incredibly disinclined to actually sort of help make that transition happen. So what does the work that you're doing do to help advisors in guiding some of these people who are hanging on and may not realize what they're really doing well it's funny so in this in this particular scenario this is one of the scenarios we talked about in our session you know i don't think that evolutionary theory has sort of magic bullets for problems that are persistent and widespread and you know clearly relate to sort of human nature the nature of organizations etc one of the things we said is there's some utility in just saying this problem is a, a not just a human universal it's 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 common across all kinds of social groups that the and that it an essential part of the problem is that these aging leaders have particular qualities that brought them to their leadership position and those qualities are deep in their thinking and not necessarily accessible to their rational, conscious, strategic thought. And they can't just turn off when it would be better for everyone if they did. If you are very driven to dominate, if you are very driven to seek out rather than avoiding certain kinds of confrontations, um, if you are very cognizant of where you stand in the hierarchy and want 
to be and you don't feel comfortable unless you are high up in that hierarchy you can't say well now i'm 75 or whatever it is and so i won't feel that way anymore and so you can be really legitimately in conflict with yourself if you are that person then the other thing is if you're talking to the junior leader it may be useful to say to that person this is an incredibly widespread problem and it is in fact just as stark as you might think it is this your father or whatever is not this isn't going to go away yeah it is going to be just as bad for the business as you think it is and there's not going to be a clean way to sort of talk this person into moving into another role. If there was, they would have already done it. There are people out there. One of the things, another thing we talked about is that you know, very traits vary in a population: behavioral traits or physical traits. So there are other leaders who don't who have it in them to transition comfortably to other roles. But if you find if the the proof in the pudding of your experience is that that's not the senior leader in your organization, then you are going to have to do what animals do is they force those individuals out or they or they kill them. Right. So you don't have to kill them. You don't have to kill <laughs> your your founder, leader, father, whatever. Um, but you have to be aware, this is where the comparative perspective I think is useful, that nature has run up against this problem over and over and over again. And, and it keeps finding the same couple solutions. And the couple solutions it finds are that those individuals get pushed out right. or killed. So killed is off the table for us. So. The organization sponsoring these podcasts is an international one. Does this kind of science and study transcend all human cultures as far as we know, at least Western human cultures? I mean, sure it does. But another thing we talked about in the session is that, you know, people have a conception, and sometimes that's the fault of scientists, that that uh, evolution is sort of unidirectional and optimizing. There are better traits and worse traits. You can be more evolved or less evolved, and that's not the case. Evolution and natural selection is about traits being favorable in a particular context. So culture is one form of context. So it may be that you will see one set of behaviors and tendencies very much favored and therefore very prevalent in culture and a really different set of behaviors within the same sort of domain of corporate culture or whatever another set of behaviors favored and therefore prevalent in another cultural context mm -hmm. so it's not I don't think it is the case I certainly wouldn't feel at all comfortable saying like well if you look at this evolutionary lens these are the good ways to be a manager and these are the bad ways to be a manager these, like, that's not it's That's sort of pointing out what it is, what what's happening here, and by pointing it out to both the existing leaders and those who are below them, hopefully leads to a better sense of understanding as to why we act the way we do. I think I think that that's right. I think like one of the things we you know we talked about the idea that you can have, and I, this is also something that, as I understand it, is more and more what we know in the field of psychology that like we think of ourselves as having these these all on one level different impulses and desires and they're kind of at war with ourselves and we kind of create these moral narratives about you know did I give in to this temptation 
because of some sort of moral failing. Did I not really want what I said I wanted? I, you know, um, whereas I think a more valid perspective, at least through from the lens through which I look at these things, is that you can have some inbuilt drives that are quite powerful that are operating absolutely simultaneously with some sort of conscious ideas about what you want to do, pursue, be, whatever. And both of them are authentic. They are both part of what ultimately adds up to your outward behavior. They are, they can be truly in conflict. Um, and you have to recognize that they're both operating. And when you see, the, the proof is in the pudding. When you find yourself able to easily sort of do what you rationally, consciously intend to do, you know you are kind of going with the flow of other drives that you may have inherited. When the you sense find of awareness yeah. that, that can bring balance to a, a family or to an individual, I guess, right? Hopefully. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, can it bring balance? I think um, being aware that there are going to be multiple powerful forces acting on how someone behaves and makes decisions is, I think, hopefully useful, especially when you find yourself in a, a situation where you have, you know, as, a, as an advisor or as a member of an organization where you have made a plan, made an agreement, there's, there's, there's consensus about what is the best plan of action, but individual constituents of that consent, consensus group are then acting in conflict with what they have said they want to do. So we also talked about, you know, when there are sort of plans in an organization to equitably distribute access to opportunities in a firm um, or professional development, opportunities for advancement, access to sort of key decision-making roles. And everyone agrees that that's how the family firm is going to operate. But then perhaps you have individuals who have the power to do this sort of sidestepping those plans or structures and giving certain opportunities to their to their own children some to the detriment of the the sort of group enterprise and that's you know in evolutionary circles we would say yeah because no matter how invested you are in in a big family enterprise our genetics lead us to be always especially interested in our very close relatives and that's a really strong drive and a lot of the ways that we behave sort of altruistically in the sense of investing in the well-being of others can be traced to some degree to the extent to which we share genes with those people so what about rivalry which is such a big part of everyday existence and certainly in family enterprises it is anywhere else and in the animal kingdom i mean i'm just a, an observer of the scene having watched enough nature films there's a lot of that uh, infighting, it seems. Uh, well, there's, yeah, there's a big sort of basic idea Robert Trivers and others uh, developed in evolutionary theory about parent-offspring conflict that, again, moves, goes back to the sort of genetic underpinnings of how we behave in families. And the, the basic idea is that from the parent's perspective, their genetic investment in their children is equal. If I have two kids, each of them is likely to contain roughly the same proportion of my genes, and so I, I'm equally invested in each of them succeeding. But 
the siblings themselves are less related to one another, just by the way the genes are distributed, than, than the parents are to either of them. And so the siblings are motivated to compete with each other, to, to try to beat each other for a, so the parent isn't essentially motivated to say, I've got this much to give, I'm gonna give 50% to you and 50% to you because I'm equally invested in each of you. But each sibling is absolutely motivated to try to get more than 50% of that parental investment. And so parents can be very, animal parents probably too, but human parents can be very frustrated when they are doing everything that they can to try to be even-handed and foster both of their children. And especially I think in successful firms from what I hear, potentially having more than enough support to give each of multiple offspring, but the children insist on infighting and trying to take the lion's share of that support. And that's something that we see in all kinds of... Pun intended, by the way, lion's share. Yeah, (laughs) certainly. Um, So, but, you know, how does that, the fact that it is sort of perhaps not a universal, but sort of a phenomenon that we see much more yeah. broadly than in human society. How does that help us solve the problem? Yeah. I mean, that I don't know. Like one of the things that we were trying to do with the session was to say, you know, this is a, a nascent conversation. There's been some work, there are a few publications um, sort of trying to pull together a lot of threads from evolutionary theory and plant them within um, this field, but it's really at it's really at an early stage and I think <clears throat> to turn insights into interventions is would have to be a matter of like collaborative work between people who study evolution and people who study or work with family businesses to kind of get concrete about what are what are the example where do we see these things playing out and what does sort of empirical data tell us about ways that families solve this problem that are more or less successful given what we know to be the underlying so before we wrap up andy uh, are we on the horizon of some breakthroughs as you see it in the study of animals the study of nature and how it corresponds to humans in, in terms of the timeline? Are we getting closer to real breakthroughs? I'd like to be able to say yes. I feel like you know evolution is an iterative process, mm-hmm. and I think uh, so is science. I think there, you know, right now, a lot of my field is very focused and attentive to how cooperative, cooperative, and coordinated behavior works. So there's a lot of sort of new attention and new thinking about how big, complicated groups manage to successfully coordinate when every individual within that group has unequal access to information, may have different agendas, different traits, whatever. So I think we're, in, we're learning new things, for example, in that area. But whenever the sort of eye of attention and funding turns towards one area that means there are other questions that maybe aren't in the spotlight and I think there's there's not necessarily a horizon on what there is to learn mm-hmm. I'm hopeful that we will find in the coming decades that we'll learn some new things about 
what the basic underpinnings of, of our of are of cooperation, especially in sort of heterogeneous groups, which I think is obviously finding ways to help heterogeneous groups cooperate effectively, uh, pretty important for current society. So I'm hoping that my field will have something useful to contribute in that area. Bonus question, last one. I was told to ask you about the bachelor buffalo. That we talked about that a little bit. So the bachelor <laughs> buffalo was the was the idea that in many social animal species there are these big powerful belligerent males that rise to power by being the biggest most powerful most belligerent um, and then as they pass their prime don't want to give up their spots and uh, African buffalo are particularly sort of picturesque examples of this and what happens with big belligerent dominant male buffalo is that finally their their belligerence and their their attempts to sort of hang on to power um, are irritating to all members of the herd and you find females rejecting them and males challenging them more and more and they get kicked out but then, so then you'll see these lone, huge, slow-moving, crusty, grumpy buffalo wandering the savanna occasionally by themselves, but then they can't afford to be by themselves because then they're too much of a target for predators. So they will then form these small bachelor herds. So you'll see a large herd of all kinds of, you know, buffaloes of all shapes and sizes, and then these little groups off more or less by themselves of these, in, like, they really are grumpy, miserable looking, <laughs> but huge, hulking, old male buffalo, probably getting on each other's nerves all the time, but finding ways to tolerate each other because they, they can't afford to be out of Grumpy old buffalo. Grumpy old buffalo. Well, thank you so much. Lots of really good stuff to, to think about, and, and I know your study continues. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our thanks again to Andrew Gersick for this fascinating conversation about ideas from evolutionary biology that can help advisors understand and address complex patterns of familial behavior and leadership actions in business families. To learn more about FFI membership, please go to www.ffi.org. For more practitioner podcasts and articles, or to submit one of your own, go to ffipractitioner.org. I'm Jordan Rich. Thanks for listening.